We're ready for the first Sunday night of the month to have a time of questions and answers. And I want to begin by the passage that Brother Tim read to us just a few moments ago. And that is there is a time for everyone that something is new to them. They, they hear it for the first time. You think of being a child. Think of a, an adolescent that now you're beginning to pay attention to what is being taught. And as you begin to try to understand things like the resurrection of the dead, which is the context of Acts chapter 17, I want to draw attention to the fact that it says, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We don't really understand it. And so, therefore, we want to know what these things mean. I'm going to tell you that the majority of the questions that I have received, at least that I know from whom I've gotten them, have come from younger Christians. And uh, they're interested. They want to know. And I listened to a lesson the other day by Brother William Woodson, and he talked about the brightness in the eyes of those young people who are really eager to learn, and they're interested in spiritual things. Let's nurture that. Let's encourage that. So we're going to provide an explanation, but then we want to see some application of that explanation as we go through. We have two questions for our discussion tonight. The first one is simply this, what is the difference between hell and Hades? Are they the same place? So for just a few minutes, let me try to do some defining of terms. And, uh, you know, if you want to look through your Bible, you'll find some of these. I can't reference all of them. But hell, the words that are used for it, in the Old Testament, you'll find the word sheol. And it means the grave, the underworld, and it's found 65 times throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the word Gehenna is found 12 times. The word Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hinnom. If you're looking at the city of Jerusalem, on the south side of it was a valley there, Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. It's known in the Old Testament from where they offered their children to the god Molech. They would place their children in the arms of some brass, fiery uh, idol and they would sacrifice their children. By the New Testament times, you get to this valley and it's a garbage dump. It's where it's burning all the time. And so when a person would think of the Valley of Hinnom, It was a mental picture that this is a place where death occurs. This is a place where uh, there's the burning of bodies. And then the word that is from the Greek word Hades. In fact, that's a transliterated word. It's the place of the dead. It matches Sheol in the Old Testament. If you have Sheol in the Old Testament, then you have the New Testament, you have Hades, and it's found ten times. And then there's the word Tartarus. It's found once in the Bible. And for the Greeks, it described a place that was under Hades. They talked about, you know, you have the underworld, and then you have under that is Tartarus. If you're reading the King James Version of the Bible, 54 times you will find the word hell. Of that, 31 times of it is Sheol, 12 times is Gehenna, 10 times is Hades, 
and one time Tartarus. If you're using the New King James, which I do, 19 times Sheol is translated hell, Gehenna 12 times, Tartarus 1, but Hades is translated Hades. And most other translations only translate hell from Gehenna and Tartarus. And you say, well, then I don't understand. Is there a difference between them? Hades refers to the whole realm of the dead, not just the wicked. When you think of hell, you think about that is the place where God will consign and send the souls of those who have been ungodly. But Hades is the realm of the dead, whether it is the righteous or the wicked. It is either paradise or torments. Now let me prove that to you from the scriptures. If you go to Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, when Jesus was on the cross and that robber who had said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say unto you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Where did the robber, the thief go? Where did Jesus go when he died? He went to paradise. When you read Acts 2, verses 27 and 31, he said, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have to ask the question, of whom is he speaking? Well, obviously speaking of Christ, because verse 31, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Where did Jesus go when he died, or where did his spirit go? His body was placed in the tomb. It did not corrupt, it did not... Um, rod, if you will. Where did his soul go? His soul went to paradise. And so Hades is comprised of both paradise and torments. Now let me go a little bit further. If you remember in Luke chapter 16 and verse 23, you have the uh, account of the rich man and Lazarus. And it says about the rich man and being in torments in Hades. So you have the paradise where Jesus and the robber have been taken. And then you have the rich man who is in the place of torments in Hades. We do know that what took place is that the rich man wanted Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and touch his tongue because he says, I'm tormented in these flames. And you remember Abraham says there is a great gulf fixed between you and us. So between that partition of Hades, the realm of the dead that are righteous, and the realm of the dead that are wicked, there's a great gulf. Part of it is paradise. Part of it is called torments. When you get to Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, you have the picture there of the end of time. He's talked about the great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose face the heaven and the earth fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the small and the great standing before the thrones and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things written in the books according to their works. Now listen to verses 13 and 14. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades 
were cast into the lake of fire. You don't need Hades anymore. Death is no more. We know that the lake of fire is, he says here, the second death. The second death is eternal death. That is hell. Hades, no more needed, will be cast there. I hope that answered the question sufficiently, uh, that there is a difference between them. Now here's my second question, and this one's a little more difficult to answer. How do you approach a person who is being a hypocrite? Live one way through the week and like a good Christian on Sunday. I thought a lot about this question. And there was a little more to the question that I've not put in here, but let me simply say the question appears to have had a person who's looking at someone specifically and they want to approach them about their hypocrisy. And let me tell you, hypocrisy is real and the Bible has a lot to say about it. Let me take a little bit of time, if you will, to lay the groundwork for answering this question. In Jeremiah 42, here's the situation. The children of Israel, most of them, have been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and moved to Babylon. There's a small remnant that's been left in the land, and they've asked Jeremiah, they said, Jeremiah, will you go to God and ask him what we ought to do? And they said, whatever God says, this is what you must do. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do what you want us to do. However, some of them got the idea they wanted to go to Egypt. They thought there would be an escape there. Well, now let's pick up with Jeremiah 42, 20. For you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God saying, pray for us. To the Lord our God, according to all that the Lord your God says, so declare it to us and we will do it. Now stop there for just a moment. Jeremiah said, when you came and you asked me to do that, you were hypocrites. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything which he has sent me or sent you by me. Now therefore know certainly that you shall die by sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place you desire to go to dwell. Now it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people all the words of the Lord their God, for which the Lord their God had sent to them all these words. And you've got Azariah, Hoshiah, Johanan, and the proud men, they said, you speak falsely. Jeremiah said, you came and asked me to go to God. I went to God. I told you what he said. And then when I told you, he said, I don't believe you. You speak falsely. They had their mind made up to start with what they were going to do. You come to the New Testament. And you find Jesus in the great Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 looking at the general populace, particularly the the uh, scribes, he says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they've received their reward. 
And moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You see what, whether it's the charitable deeds, whether it's the prayers, or whether it is the fasting, these people were not doing it out of devotion to God. They were doing it because they wanted to be seen by men. And Jesus said, that's what you wanted, that's what you got. You didn't get God's blessing from it. You see, hypocrisy here is essentially putting on an act or pretending. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. It's to be somebody who is acting as if you were one way and you're something else in reality. I want you to listen to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 13. So he changed his behavior toward them pretended madness in their hands, scratched the door of their gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. You know who that is? That's David. David was among the Philistines. He was afraid they were going to kill him. So what David did was put on a show. He started just acting like a crazy person, scratching on the door and letting his saliva run down. They said, well, he may be King David, but he's crazy. Don't worry about him pretending. Or Luke chapter 20, verse 20. So they watched him, they watched Jesus, and sent spies, now listen, who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. You know, there are some people now whose goal it is to go and try to talk to somebody and act like you're one of them to get them on camera so that you can embarrass them and show their hypocrisy. Well, a hypocrite is somebody who's pretending to be something they're not. The problem for hypocrites is they do not realize the Lord is able to see past their facade. If you're a hypocrite, I might know that or I might not know that. But there's one thing for certain. God knows what's in your heart and in your motivation. One of the passages that always impresses me is I'm reading through the, the book of Joshua and the children of Israel have come in and they've settled the land and you know they're, they're there and God's given them some rules and instructions about making covenants. The Gibeonites, it says, and the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai. They worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal and said to him, to the men of Israel, we've come up from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Oh, Joshua, we're from a long way off. Look at our old moldy bread. Look at our shoes. They were pretending. Verse 14 said, but they asked not the counsel of the Lord. God knew that these men of Gibeon were from just over the hill, so to speak. They weren't from a far country. They were lying. Joshua didn't know that. God knew. 
Psalms 81, verses 13 through 16. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have also fed them with the finest of wheat and the honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. God said, you would have done right. I would have taken care of you. But what you're doing is pretending, and I know what you're doing. How many times does a child come in, and you look at that child, and that child's trying to pretend, and you know what's going on. God knows what's going on. Jeremiah 3.10, And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah turned not to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Sometimes people, you put pressure on them, will change their ways, but they don't mean it. Just like, I'll give you a good illustration. Little boy and little girl, brother and sister, he pushes her down. Mama and daddy say, you tell them you're sorry. You know what they'll say? Sorry. You know they don't mean it. They do it because you made them do it. How do you approach somebody who's like that? You can expect denial. I'm not a hypocrite. You can expect deflection. Well, I'm better than so-and-so over there, what they're doing. You can expect displeasure. How dare you to question me and my ideals? Let me offer what I think might be a little bit different perspective than what everybody was thinking I was going to do with this. I want to lay the good foundation. It's possible that this person really wants to do right but has been trapped by sin. In other words, sin now has control of them. And it's actually ruling their lives. I want you to listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach. Patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God will perhaps grant to them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may, now listen carefully, come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Here's a man who's been taken captive. He's not thinking correctly anymore. He's not come to his senses yet. Well, how do I do that? Do I go up and say, boy, you sure are a big old hypocrite. Let me ask you a question. If I come to you after service and I look you in the eye and say, you know what, you're a big hypocrite. I'm going to duck because I'm going to make you mad. Listen to what Paul said. Gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those. It's possible that that person is weak and has been influenced by the hypocrisy of somebody else. You know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul will tell the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I was stood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that Barnabas, even Barnabas, was carried away their hypocrisy. Yes, Paul withstood Peter because he was the ring leader of the hypocrites. But what about Barnabas? What about the rest of the Gentile and Jewish brethren about this problem that arose? Can I be influenced or you be influenced by someone else's hypocrisy? Barnabas was. The rest of the Jewish brethren were as well. What I would suggest to you is to be good before them and realize that we to ourselves may have been hypocritical. If you go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged, for what judgment you judge, you will be judged. What measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, behold, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, here's the problem many times. We're looking at someone else and we're seeing their hypocrisy. Boy, that's, we can see 20-20 when looking at someone else's life. But he's saying look at yourself and make sure that there's not something in your own life that reflects that. Now listen to Galatians 6, 1 through 4. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. And then he'll have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. You look at and you see a brother who's used gentleness in restoring. And then he said, look to yourself. Boy, that really changes the perspective, doesn't it? How do I approach someone else who's a hypocrite? Let me tell you what you do first. You look at yourself. And you say, is there any hypocrisy in my life? Am I pretending to be one thing when I'm something else? Once you've got that where you know that the correct way is going there, then you go to that person and you start then trying to gently and kindly and lovingly try to reach them and help them see themselves as they really are. The best questions are the ones that make us think and search. It's the one that drives us to God's Word and say, there's the answer, there's where we're going to find it. We want to make sure that when we ask questions, though, that we're taking some time to make some application to our lives and learn from them. You know, if, if we didn't learn anything else from the, tonight's lesson, the lesson on hypocrisy from this one should cause us to say, 
I need to look at myself and think what I'm doing. Are you a faithful child of God? We're going to sing the song, Hark the Gentle Voice. And if you need to become a child of God, no greater time than right now. You come forward, you confess your faith in Christ, repenting of your sins. We'll baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. If you're a Christian, you need us to pray with you. We'll pray with you. We encourage you and we invite you to come as together we stand and sing.